The following is a message given by Sheldon Campbell, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. All right. Well, pleasant morning, Grace Family Church. It's truly a delight for me to have a another opportunity to share God's Word with you this morning. All right, so kindly open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, or you can locate it on your electronic devices. My sermon today is titled, The Gospel Saves Outcasts. And it is a continuation, as Sean says, of our Acts series called Witness. All right, so let's look to God's word that shows us his plan to redeem a people for himself that isn't limited to a particular group or ethnicity. So I'll read Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through to 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that it possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samar Samaritans. You know, we live in a world where we want to be, be constantly amazed and stimulated, and so we live on our phones, our smart TVs and devices, looking for the next real uh, media posts, episodes, our series, you know, that, that flawless performance in singing, dance, sports, etc. You know, we desire purpose and significance and happiness amidst a life that is often full of strife, disappointment, and the mundane. And so we often look to the wrong source for these things. While the people in our story, the Samaritans, didn't have our devices, they had similar problems and desires to what I just described. You know, just as we sometimes lose ourselves in the digital world, forgetting what truly matters, the Samaritans too were captivated by Simon's sorcery, make, mistaking it for divine power. This parallel guides us into the heart of our story in Acts 8, where Philip, through God's power, counters Simon's magic feats simply through his preaching of the gospel and performing miracles signifying Christ's power. Moreover, you know, we also need to confront a lie that the world often whispers in our ears. Everything has a price. In a society driven by transactions seeking power, fame, security, and well-being, material gain will often overshadow moral values and it will be easy to fall into the trap of believing that everything including spiritual blessings can be bought and sold you know in acts 8 4 to 25 our story we meet the antagonist simon the magician the sorcerer a man who believed that even the gift of the holy spirit had a price tag his story is true and a powerful reminder of the dangers of equating spiritual wealth with worldly riches. His request shows the value he placed on power. You know, doesn't this story challenge us to reflect on our own values and the times we may have compromised our walk in pursuit of material gain and other benefits? Notwithstanding, Simon did not get the opportunity to... Um, he, he did get the opportunity to repent, and we know that Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So as we delve into the story, 
Let's ask ourselves, what are the prices we are willing to pay in our lives? Are we trading our integrity, our faith, our relationships for fleeting gains? You know, this story is a mirror. Just think about it, it's a mirror reflecting our struggles in a world that often values the tangible over the intangible or the material over the spiritual. In our story, while Simon symbolizes the allure of worldly power, it is Philip who emerges as a humble servant of Christ, guiding us to the ultimate hero of every biblical narrative, Jesus himself. Philip's unwavering commitment to Christ's teaching offers a stark contrast to Simon's misguided values. So as we, as we explore this passage, let's look to Philip, not just an example of faith, but as a pointer to the great hero, Jesus Christ. His life and message echoed through Philip's action invites us to re-evaluate our priorities and center our lives around the gospel, the true treasure beyond any worldly price. So, building on our introduction about Christ's supremacy over idolatry and gospel centrality over self-centeredness, exemplified by Philip, we now turn to the heart of Luke's narrative in Acts 8. Here we find four essential themes that echo Philip's ministry and resonate with our spiritual walk. Let's explore these themes to deepen our understanding and faith. So they are one, Philip's evangelistic ministry. Two, Philip's superior God. Three, the promised Holy Spirit. And four, purchasing the spirit and you see there a question mark so as we journey through each of these we'll uncover the timeless truth embedded in this ancient yet ever-living story so let's start with main point number one Philip's evangelistic ministry so in verse 4 it begins right um, know those who were scattered so this is therefore a, a direct fulfillment of Acts 1, verse 8, where Jesus had told them that the gospel must be preached in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So finally, Samaria, right? And the ends of the earth. So here we see that God used the persecution, beginning with Stephen's death, and then others, you know, both men and women, who were being killed after Stephen's death, right? to fulfill his promise that he had given. So basically what I'm saying is they're scattering, right? Was the means to which, or it led to the preaching of God's word in these particular areas. No, the church didn't switch focus to address some campaigns like, listen, Christian lives matter. Well, it does. Again, showing the importance and the prominence of preaching God's words. We can get caught up in doing many things as a church, but we mustn't forsake 
the ministry of the word, prayer, and the making of disciples, which the church is uniquely called to do as its mission. So let's jump on. In verse 5, it mentions Philip. Now we know Philip is one of the seven Greek-speaking um, Jewish believers who was chosen to serve the widows, right? You know, what's interesting to note, and, you know, I, again, this is just me just observing the text. Um, when I looked at the text, I realized in Acts 6, you know, they were all full of the Spirit and wisdom. But it starts with Stephen and then Philip, and then you, you hear the other five names, right? But I, I can't help but wonder if Luke had put these names in a sequence. I, I guess you guys see where I'm going with that. A sequence or some kind of ranking based on their influence and how the church thought about them. Because you would, you would have remembered right after they mentioned the seven, um, you had this... Um, you know, chapters 6, 7, and 8 is about Stephen. And then, it, then in our verse 4 um, to the end, it talks about Philip. So the question is, you know, what's happening here? Why are these two, um, why, why is it that Paul, I mean, Luke is actually pinpointing these two here. The other thing, too, that I recognize is that um, the other five were not mentioned in the whole of the New Testament. So, again, you have these sevens, but then Stephen and Philip are the ones that we see um, all of this written about here. Yet, one of the things that, um, as I think about that, which I, f I think is very encouraging, is that we can be assured that the other five likely performed excellent service, excellent ministry, to which they were called. But you know what? It's typical in life. A lot of times it's only a small percentage of people that typically stand out. Think about it. However, what God wants is not necessarily people who stand out, you know, and that's not a bad thing, especially when you're standing out for a good thing, right? But what God wants is faithfulness. And you know, the reality is, I believe they were all faithful. So anyway, um, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ. John Stott notes it's hard for us to imagine the boldness of the step Philip took in preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. For the hostility, when you hear this, the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans had lasted a thousand years. <laughs> it began with the breakup of the monarchy in the 10th century BC, when the 10 tribes defected, making Samaria their capital, and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. Now, for the benefit of those who are here who, you know, you said, boy, what, what's that about? Um, I can give you a little bit more context. So, what had happened is, um, the 12 tribes of Israel had um, divided into two. And you had the northern kingdom, which comprised of 10. 
tribes known simply as Israel, where the, the capital was Samaria. And, um, and then you have the southern kingdom, which consisted um, mainly of Judah and Benjamin. And that southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. And um, those two tribes would have, well, as I said, would have been Judah and Benjamin, right? And the capital of, of the southern kingdom would have been Jerusalem. So I want you to think about that. So Jerusalem would have been the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria would have been the capital of the northern kingdom. So can't you just imagine from that time, from that divide? Um, so, so let's continue. So in Philip's time, the Samaritans were a group of people who had descended from, as I said, the Israelites then. And they remained in Samaria after the Assyrians conquered them um, in 722 BC. So, you know, this is a long time ago. But what had happened is when they were conquered by these people, what do you think happened? What generally happened when, when people conquer you? People start living with you and there's repopulation. So what is happening? There's a mixture. There's a mixture of these Israelites and these Greeks, Gentiles. So what happened is over time, um, these Samaritans became known as what? Pretty much a mixed breed. <laughs> yeah. So now, because there was this mixture, what do you think also would happen? Remember, they were Israelites, you know, so they were supposed to have believed in the one God. But when you start mixing, you know, what happens? Idols come in. So eventually what has happened is these Samaritans were then considered to be heretics. So they were now mixed breeds and heretics. So that's actually how the Jews looked at them. So I'm just trying to give you the context so you understand what's going on here. All right? According to L.T. Johnson, the Samaritans were at best among the lost sheep of Israel. The, ev the evangelization of them by Philip therefore continues the work of Jesus in reaching out to the marginal and outcast among the people and inviting them to a full participation in the restored people of God forming around the prophet whom God raised up. You know, and as we look further in verse 6 through to 8, it explains that, listen, the crowds were listening intently. I want you to hear this because we're going we're to come back to this. The crowds were listening intently to Philip because of his message, and this would have been the gospel message, and the miracle of signs he was performing. Many evil spirits were being cast out. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And this happened over a period of time. And he said many. Just think of it, many. So there was what? Great joy in that city. You know, you know are, you, are you being challenged as you recognize the, the importance of sharing the word as Philip did? Even with hostility being present. You know, while we're not all called to be evangelists, we can share the gospel with friends, with family, with our co-workers, 
with our classmates, with our neighbors. You can think about it. You know, the greatest and most meaningful joy will come to them as they obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ. And, and as they are also reconciled with God the Father. So, having tackled Philip's evangelistic ministry in our first point, let's, you know, this brings us to our next focus, Philip's superior God. We delve into how Philip's experiences, especially with Simon the sorcerer, our magician, highlights God's supreme power over evil forces. So, Main point number two, Philip's superior God. So in verse 9, we come to the story of Simon, the magician, which we will address for the remaining part of the sermon. You know, he was someone, as I said, he practiced sorcery. Um, witchcraft. Maybe that might be a better way of thinking about it. Because when we say magic, sometimes we don't really, you know... We, yeah, you think, yes, we think card tricks, and this is not card tricks here. <laughs> but he was doing this for many years. Um, he's likely a Samaritan. So he lives there, and he's doing it for many years, and the people are just amazed at the things these guys are doing. Now, it's interesting because even when you think about even... Um, in the Old Testament, and you think about when God had raised up Moses... Um, to go and deliver the children of Israel, you would have remembered there were also people there who were doing the same thing. Sorcerers, and you know, they were doing stuff. And a lot of times we don't, it's almost like we don't believe these things are true. But it is. You do have people who are um, using, you know, witchcraft to do amazing things, quote unquote. I may put it that way. Anyway. So as you think about this, look in your Bibles, you realize they use this terminology about great. So it, it seems to be that there are persons who thought of this Simon the Sorcerer as possibly maybe a deity. You know, a common G-O-D, a little G-O-D. You know, and, and they listened closely to him. Wow, that language sounds very much like what we just heard when Philip was preaching. Hmm, what's happening here? So they listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with magic. So what I think is happening here is that Luke is contrasting the outcome of Philip's God versus Simon, little old G.O.D. When Philip preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, they believed and were baptized both men and women. So much so that even Simon, the magician, the sorcerer, himself believed and was baptized and continued with Philip. When I say continue with Philip, I mean him walk around with Philip. He was just so amazed by this man. Everywhere Philip would go, he would go. And he's seen the signs, he's seen the great miracles that Philip, this evangelist, this one out of the seven that we heard about in Acts 6, is doing, and he is amazed. Now, it's interesting that the guy who was 
amazing the persons in Samaria is now being amazed by this Christian, Philip. Wow. GFC, can you identify someone in your life who, like Simon, might seem unlikely to be receptive to the gospel? Think about it. This one, them caught up in, them go peer dance all, this, you know, them go, just think about it. Maybe they're into, I don't know, I remember in my days, people used to do death metal and hell metal and all kind of stuff. Whatever. The point is, they could be as dark as you could possibly think. Can you think of someone like that? Maybe someone you know. Will you commit to praying for them? And I'll go even further. And sharing your faith with them. Trusting in the gospel's power to transform hearts and lives. Just as it transformed Simon. A lot of times we think, we think, oh, we can't do it. But you're not the one who's going to do it. You know, the Bible tells us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. So what we do, we just share. We leave it to God to do the rest. But let me, but let me add on to that. Is there a Samaria in your life? Is there a place or a situation where you find it challenging to express your faith? Think about it. It could be your job. It could be your school. It could even be your household. Would you commit to taking one bold step, maybe this week, to share your faith in this environment, drawing strength from God's power, just as Philip did while he was there in Samaria? Anyway, seeing this remarkable shift in Samaria, where even Simon, who once was, as I said, revered for his witchcraft, um, now being in awe of Philip's miracles and the gospel, we witness the stage being set for what God is going to do next. This leads us to our next pivotal point, the promised Holy Spirit. We will explore how the acceptance of the gospel in Samaria paves the way for the Holy Spirit's transformative work, fulfilling God's promise and marking a new chapter in the lives of these Samaritan believers. So main point number three, the promised Holy Spirit. So if you're, if you're tricking with me, you should be in verse 14 right now. So, so in verse 14, we see news, right? We see news of what is happening in Samaria went to the apostles at Jerusalem. And so they sent John and Peter to Samaria, right? These are the apostles. Now, you may wonder, you know, what was the significance of sending the apostles um, to Samaria? Well, the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon the Samaritans as yet. Remember, I'd mentioned earlier that the Samaritans were a half-breed. And the fact that they were now getting saved, you know, they were trying to understand, you know, what was happening there. So what did what they do? Peter and John came down to them, 
prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, as I said, for he had not fallen on them as yet, although they had been baptized. Hey, what's going on there? In the name of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, Peter and John, want you to think about it, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, one question that often arises, and I'm sure many of you may have asked this question as you read this text, um, from this is, if the filling of the Spirit is at or after conversion? Now, within our denomination, our family of churches, um, Sovereign Grace churches, we hold both of these views. So both views are held. Um, we've deliberately made room for both instead of arguing over this issue. The difference comes to um, with, you know, whether the view what happened in the case of the Samaritans, whether it was normal or abnormal. You know, some of our pastors and members believe this text shows that the filling of the Spirit can be subsequent to trusting Jesus. Um, so they would expect that in many cases this would be the experience of believers even today. Others believe that according to Acts 2.38-39, to and you would, have you would have remembered, Acts 2.38-39 is where Peter at Pentecost, he's given his sermon and he preaches and he says, listen, all those who come to Christ in faith for the, for, for the forgiveness of their sins, right, um, immediately they will be filled with the Spirit, right? So they would see any experience of filling after that point um, to be similar to what we saw in Acts 4, and you would have remembered in Acts 4 was when the believers prayed for boldness, and you know what the scripture said? And they were filled again. So they would see this situation with the Samaritans as abnormal and unusual. So both would agree that the apostles' presence was meant to affirm that God's salvation had been given to the Samaritans, outcasts, as I said, mixed breeds, who would normally be shunned by the Jews. All right. So, by laying hands on them, then the apostles, what do you think they were doing? They were expressing acceptance of them into the Christian family. That up to the point had only included, as we know, Jews, or those who had converted to Judaism, who, who also um, became um, believers, Christians. Um, when Grudem notes, um, directly through the hands of the apostles, um, so that it might be evident. So I want you to think about this. The reason, as they lay their hands on them, it was, it, there's a statement that is taking place. And you know what the statement is? This is a statement to those in the highest leadership in Jerusalem church that the Samaritans weren't a second-class citizen but full members of the church. Think about it. Even in Jamaica, um, I would say this tends to happen. You'd hear people say, I've been saved. 
And then somebody will say, but have you been filled? And then, if, and then if you've not been filled, you kind of feel, well, am I a second class Christ Christian, eh? So this was exactly what they were trying to address here. That makes sense? Okay. The ESP expository commentary suggests the presence of Peter and John, again, the apostles who came down, is for the authentication of the event. In this first instance of belief in, Ju in Jesus outside of a Jewish community, the presence of the apostles at the giving of the Spirit stand as proof positive that the new covenant is open to all who believe in Jesus. Everyone who believes receives the Spirit, and no amount of background or ancestry guarantees or excludes anyone from the covenant. That's good news. But how can we hold these two views as a part of the same de denomination? How can we believe this idea of filling uh, conversion and filling um, subsequence? Well, it, we can because we put the emphasis not on arguing about when our first experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit wa was, but on continually pursuing the filling of the Holy Spirit. But I know, I know I started talking about Jamaica, and I have to touch this one. We see in this passage that once people believed in Jesus, then they were what? Baptized. So this idea in Jamaica that I'm a Christian but haven't been baptized actually goes against what we see in the book of Acts. Most times when I ask persons, you know, why? You know, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on to be baptized? They say it's because they haven't fully committed to Christ, as if anyone living our dead ever did that. Some say it's because they're shocking up with someone, um, some of you may not know what that means. It means you're living with someone who you're not married to simply. Um, in a very intimate relationship. <laughs> okay. You know, some, some, some would say, listen, I want to continue to to party and live it up some more. And later on in life, later on in life, when I get older, I'm going to take the plunge. I'm sure you've heard that in Jamaica as well. However, this shows the erroneous view that they have of being a Christian. You know, we come to Christ counting the cost, yes? But we are also trusting him to keep us. And this occurs by us finding our daily delight in Christ, and not others, not money, not our possessions. On the other hand, we have heard many stories, I'm sure you even know people, who got baptized based on their professional faith. But when they were examined, remember in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 told us, um, you should be able to look on a tree and know what it is based on its fruit. There have been many people who have professed faith, and when we look on the fruit... Now, let me, let me make it simple for you guys. 
Don't when you look on a tree and you see mango, it tells you what kind of tree it is. You see the mango says what kind of tree? Alright. When you look when you see a fruit and it gives out plums, what kind of tree is it? Alright. So you wouldn't expect to look on a you see a fruit which is plum and you say, Oh, that's a mango tree, right? That would be crazy. Okay. So these people profess faith. They were baptized. But when you look on the fruit, when you looked at their lifestyle, it appears that they were never saved. That's what Matthew 7 tells us to do. We should know them by their fruit. Well, having explored the promised Holy Spirit being given to the Samaritan believers and the importance of earnestly desiring the Spirit's fulfilling in our lives, we now encounter a starkly contrasting, I would say, perspective in our narrative, right? This brings us to our next point, purchasing the Spirit. And you see here I have it in quotation marks. Here we delve into Simon the sorcerer, attempt to buy what he perceived as spiritual power. A misguided action that contrasts with this genuine, grace-filled reception of the Holy Spirit which we just discussed. This comparison will further illuminate our understanding of the true nature of spiritual gifts and the dangers of commodifying, if you want to put it that way, what is divinely bestowed. Because remember, the Holy Spirit, he divinely gives these things. So we come to main point number four, purchasing the Spirit. So in verse 18 to 24, Simon witnessing the Holy Spirit being given. So Peter and John are laying hands. And I don't know what happened. You guys are creative. You could probably think about it. I don't know if when they laid hands, um, Simon saw people speaking in tongues. And he was like, oh, I need that. Maybe, when, maybe they laid hands on Simon. And when they laid hands on him, him he started speaking in tongues like, whoa. This is cool. I need to get what these apostles have so I can do this to others. Whatever the case may have been, right? You know what happens? Peter sternly rebukes him for wanting to purchase the Holy Spirit. And what did Peter do? Peter urged him to repent for having such a wrongful intent in his heart. Now, this scene has sparked much debate. Some argue that Simon's actions and Peter's res um, response suggest that he wasn't truly saved. Others view Simon as a believer still struggling with his old, power-hungry mindset, highlighting the need for continual spiritual renewal. Now, I would lean slightly more towards this view and suggest that even in Peter's response, I mean Peter's rebuke, and you see, um, and you see Simon's re response, I would say it indicates that he repented. I, 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 would, I would be more of that view. And, um, and I would even go as far to say 
his prayer request to Peter also demonstrated contrition. Um, but again, this is also contested by many scholars. But here, what I want to do, I want to show, I want to just um, share something with you because I want you guys to think about this. So interestingly, I would use Jesus rebuking who now? The Apostle Peter. So remember here, Peter is the one who is rebuking Simon, right? I'm going to use when Jesus rebuked Peter. You would remember that Jesus had rebuked Peter in Matthew 16, right? Wow. Would you say that Peter wasn't saved because Jesus rebuked him? No. I, and we would also look, you know, shortly before that in Acts, we have the story of a couple which the Bible says were believers, Ananias and Sapphira. And they were what? Rebuked by Peter for what? Lying to the Holy Spirit. Right? About the proceeds of a land sale. And we know that both of them dropped dead. That was a serious re rebuke there. <laughs> I know, I'm giving trouble. Let me, let me stop. <laughs> but, the point is, um, you would see that as a believer, you can be rebuked. That's the point I'm trying to make. So I, as I said, I would be of the view that, you know, Simon here could be a believer who was simply rebuked by Peter because of what he said. All right, so Jeff, see, how do we, re we react when God's ways doesn't align with our desires, our expectations? Hmm. Are there areas in our lives where we still cling to our old selves? This week, I want to encourage each of you to identify one specific area in your life that needs renewal. It could be an attitude, a habit, or a relationship. I want you to commit to praying over this area daily, seeking God's guidance to transform and align it with His will. Remember, true transformation in Christ isn't just a one-time event. It's a continual process of renewing our minds and hearts to reflect Jesus more and more each day. In verse 25, which is the last verse before I close, we hear the apostles Peter and John went about preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. As such, they were able to testify and speak the word of the Lord Jesus to the Samaritans before they left and went back to Jerusalem. So as we reflect on the apostles' journey, and some would even say verse 25 is like a summary statement of what was happening, right? As we reflect on the apostles' journey, spreading the gospel through the Samaritan villages, we see the unfolding of the big picture from our sermon today. And you know what our big picture is today? Our sovereign God saves outcasts. To fulfill his promise through evangelism and to equip them with his promised Holy Spirit. In conclusion, this journey from Philip's ministry to the apostles' final testimony, it encapsulates 
God's redemptive plan in action. It reaching the marginalized, the outcast, confronting the misguided desires and transforming lives through his Holy Spirit. Here our role in God's plan, like Philip and the apostles, is to be faithful conduits of his message, embracing and sharing the transformative power of the gospel. May we be inspired to continually renew our minds and hearts, fully embracing our new identity in Christ and extending his grace and truth to all, just as it was extended to the Samaritan. You have just listened to a message by Sheldon Campbell, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.